It is another episode of the Africa Green Collar Project. Thank you so much for joining us. I am your host, Churchill Omondi Agutu, and today we're engaging Dr. Olufolahan Osunmiwa, where we talk about sustainable energy transitions in developing countries with a focus on the sub-Saharan African region. She gives us insight into the challenges facing sustainable energy transitions. We ask ourselves how we can turn these challenges into opportunities, and we also gain some insight into cultural factors that influence sustainable energy transitions. So listen in, engage us, and learn something new. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Africa Green Collar Project. I'm your host, Churchill Omondi Agutu, and today we're joined by Dr. Olufolahan Osunmiwa. She's a development professional and a researcher at the Institute for Environmental Studies in Amsterdam, and she's speaking to us from the Netherlands. Welcome, Olu. Thank you very much, Churchill, for having me. Great. So Ulu and I met during the Engineering for Development course, which was hosted at the University of Cape Town by the ETH of Zurich. I've attached the link in case you're interested. We actually learned about Engineering for Development and looked at um, low carbon energy and development strategies. Yes, so Olu and I are talking today about um, sustainable energy transitions in developing countries. And uh, it's a very important topic, especially because we've mentioned um, before that more than 621 million people in sub-Saharan Africa do not have access to electricity. And so this is a huge gap that presents us with opportunities to think of solutions that can be used to make sure that we can provide energy to all these people, sustainably, of course. And so, um, as we know, the biggest um, goal of, of the Africa Green Collar Project is to help us identify some of these gaps and some of these challenges challenges so that we can start working on developing solutions for this. Okay, Olu, so tell us a bit about yourself. Oh, uh -huh. um, thank you very much. Um, I am a social scientist, specifically a political scientist by background. Uh, my bachelor's was in political science and international relations. I also had my master's, uh, which was also on, uh, in the field of political science and international relations, but specifically I looked at the um, how corporates uh, corporations use corporate social responsibility um, as a mask or as a cosmetic approach to avoid em environmental responsibility. And I looked at the, the context of oil multinational oil multinationals uh, in the Delta region of Nigeria. Um, after that, I was quite interested in, in environmental issues and environmental rights. So I decided to, um, you know, kind of expand my horizons and seek out a PhD. So I started my PhD in 2013, which was basically to um, look at the opportunities and constraints to energy transitions in sub-Saharan Africa, because as you rightly mentioned, more than 60, 650 million people lack access to modern energy services on the continent and quite a number of people are dying due to exposure to paraffins and kerosene and open fumes. So for me, this was, I mean, it wasn't just the fact that, you know, the, there are big numbers. It's the fact that despite these numbers, we, we didn't see like, a, like an upsurge. There was no drastic increase in, in low carbon energy transitions or transitions of any kind. Um, so um, we just, um, so for me, this were quite interesting subjects and topics. As such, I decided to explore this. Um, so um, I 
my PhD is in the Netherlands um, at the Fry University, specifically the Institute for Environmental Policy uh, in the Netherlands, in Amsterdam. And so, but my case study was in Sub-Saharan Africa and specifically Nigeria, because I wanted to see, I wanted to explore the dynamics of, you know, oil, the presence of oil and economic rent from oil and how this structures um, transitions at the continental level. Basically, what we've seen a lot is a lot of projects done on energy transitions or a lot of projects on a lot of projects on uh, on you know sustainable energy in Africa and no one seems to be talking about you know the 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 big elephants in the room, you know, the poli- the lack of political commitment. And we have seen that you know in the last 10 years with the influx of renewables on the continent, what we've seen is regressive policies. We've seen regressive policies, we've seen technological overestimation. And you know, these are things that have become significant drawbacks for renewable energy projects and its progress on the continent. So um for me, uh, there were things we needed to, to study and talk about. And, you know, when I, I wanted to just understand the political processes and how this has affected, you know, transitions um, um, at the local level. Yes, and specifically in um, sub-Saharan Africa. Exactly. Um, something interested that I saw that you mentioned, well, I had the opportunity to read your summary. And one of the things that I found very interesting that you mentioned was that um, a lot of the struggles in the Nigerian energy sector have sort of rippled off into others. So they've influenced economic productivity, employment, industrialization. According to you, what are some of the biggest levers that you think Nigeria has to be able, that can influence the energy sector? And what do you think would be um, the benefits for the other sectors? And additionally, do you also think that it could also be um, a benefit to other developing countries? Are there some strategies that you think can not, not, not only have to be um, implemented or developed in Nigeria, but can also be implemented by other developing countries in Africa? Okay, so for me, interestingly, um, I think Nigeria, even though it's quite a unique case, it's the, the, the things happening in Nigeria are quite replicable to sub-Saharan Africa and the African continent as a whole. Because you see, despite the fact that Nigeria exports oil, it also imports oil. So you see there is a, you know, there's an interaction between currency fluctuations and oil importations and its effects on the entire economy as a whole, which is what we see in other African countries. We see how oil imports and um, currency fluctuations affect, you know, the dependence on oil or increases Times, yeah, increases the dependence on oil. So for me, and this is quite interesting. It was a very interesting phenomenon, and but the point was that within the system that seems so past dependent and so impossible to break through, there are actually um, levers and pathways by which you can, you know, you can trigger this transition. So for instance, these countries are reaching. Are rich in renewable energy resources. They are countries which have, uh, you know, um, which have ample access to solar. You know, some have ample access to hydro, wind, and so these potentials are there, waiting to be tapped. But even when you get the technology in, you still have to fight the political Goliaths, like we like to call them in the transitions literature. You know, you need to fight those people. Either you bring them in as partners and, you know, show them that they are potentials within the sector. You know, that's, you know, sort of increase incremental changes. 
or you basically, you know, introduce radical transformations. So in the case of sub-Saharan Africa, what we see is that, you know, outside of the political, you know, political drawbacks and the political goliaths, we also see cultural drawbacks. You know, people are so used to, people are so used to kerosene and paraffins that it's, you know, sort of difficult to change cultural pathways, you know, path, cultural paths. Yeah, exactly. You know, cultural yeah. path dependence. So those are two critical factors people need to work on. And like I said, you know, uh, unlike a developed country where, you know, um, oil is just seen in terms of services and rigs for countries in sub-Saharan Africa, oil is the lifeline of the economy. You know, these people rely on oil for practically everything. So, you need to, you know, when you, when making a, a, a policy planning or policy modeling, like we talked about at the E4D, you need to always put that into consideration that this particular resource has shaped the sociopolitical materiality of, you know, countries in Africa. But there are pathways to solve this, which is the interesting part. Because um, once you are able to convince the political actors, then you see that, you know, policy processes become uh, simpler, you know, issues of permits, issues of, uh, you know, po uh, policies to, yeah, exactly, you know, issues of risks, you know, counterparty risks, uh, currency risk, financial risk, banking risks, you know, those things would slowly fade away. And, uh, and I think that's what Africa needs at, at this point. We need to be able to de-risk the energy sector as a whole. And that's because currently the existing energy structure, the governance structure there is quite weak and uh, some are even non-existent. So first of all, you need to govern the energy sector. You know, a lot of the, the energy infrastructure in African countries are quite, they are quite uh, centralized, you know. So we've been talking about, you know, unbundling the energy sector, making it more liberalized, but importantly, making it, you know, uh, transparent and accountable and more efficient because this opens uh, you know it opens up a space for investors to come in and say yeah we we're sure our investments will be protected and we're sure that you know there will be smooth operational processes that would allow us to maximize our profit and at the same time provide good quality services for the people so, so just, uh, I, just, I think it was something i just wanted to lead on a follow-on question based on something that you mentioned about cultural drawbacks and um, I specifically just wanted to ask, okay. do you think that the when you look at the cultural drawbacks, it's more on a large scale compared to a small scale? Because you mentioned already that you re we have um, centralized energy systems. And um, from what I'm, from my perspective, it seems that changing these bigger sort of energy systems is what is something that can be done, say, independently of looking at the cultural factors. But then when you go down to the grassroots level, where you're trying to, like you said, convince people to move, say, from kerosene to like um, solar or to electricity, then now it becomes a very big problem. Do you think that the bigger chunk of the problem lies in the bigger, in the, the centralized system? Or do you think that the smaller, say, the Yes, the smaller ones where you talk about these issues with cultural drawbacks are the ones that will have the biggest impact, especially in achieving the um, energy transition towards a low carbon pathway. I think it's both. So it's not one. One is not superior to the other. So that, that's exactly the way I see it, because even with large systems, I mean, with the large systems, for example, um, we all know that even though 
energy infrastructure is decentralized in, in, in sub-Saharan Africa, but most people still don't have access to these grids. So, so for me, and financially, in terms of cost-benefit analysis, it's not even wise to extend those grids because it's much more expensive. So take, for instance, a country like Rwanda, uh, which has 20% access rate, and this access, 60% of that 20% is in urban centers. Uh, so for, for, for that kind of a country, it would take about $1.2 billion you know, to extend grid infrastructure into villages. And um, this is the money they don't have. The government doesn't have this. Investors are not willing to put money on grid extension, you know, even if it's politically attractive at the moment for for political um, for, polit for for politicians. But then it's not something that's quite cost effective. So we've seen like a, a, a trickle down into uh, mini grids, micro grids at the local level. But the problem with this is that when you have mini grids and micro grids, a decentralized system creates new power hierarchies and new power structures. And you know, uh, and then you you you're creating a whole new ripple effects of a uh, a whole system, a whole new regime that can even become part dependent if you're not careful, you know. You're trying to break a part dependent system, but you're creating you're replacing them you're, you're you can't replace them with another path-dependent system, which is what, you know, most transition scholars are uh, sometimes, you know, saying, oh, we need to be careful in how we uh, sort of, you know, advocate for this, because truly you can you can replace a regime with an even much more path-dependent regime. So, uh, so in terms of culture, so culture comes into play with this decentralized micro-grids, mini-grids. And honestly speaking... Um, I've seen, you know, I've seen a lot of projects on energy and what we see is that because of the, the new power structures, you even see it at the household level culturally. So, for example, a study in Tanzania showed that men that were relatively not at home because of lack of electricity started staying, spending more hours at home. So you see it shape? Oh, that's so as soon as they, they managed to get access to electricity, they spent more hours staying exactly. at home. So you see, changes, oh, uh, you, you even see a change in the dynamics at the household level, which is why I say that, you know, even when we do energy interventions at the local level and we do energy interventions in communities, we need to study how this affects households and even gender relations at the local level, you know? So it's 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 a whole lot of factors woven together. You talk about culture, you talk about gender relations, you talk about power relations. How does this affect ex existing power structures within, within, within the community? Because you will be empowering some people which will disempower others. So for example, um, if, if you would say, if, if a traditional if a community has a traditional structure whereby the, the 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 community leader used to be the revert person and then you come in with a with an electricity system and then there's a manager there's a power dynamics at play because the manager then becomes oh my god the person that has brought you you know it's it's, it's those little nuances, we don't think about them, but they do exist because the manager becomes the person that has brought civilization in quote. And then so so you can see that there, there is, you know, there is a new power structure at play within the local level just 
based on an introduction of a microgrid or a mini grid. That's an interesting thing that you've also mentioned there in terms of the gaps. You've now now added the idea of um, the gender dynamics, the power dynamics. Do you think that these are gaps that youth can actually fill in terms of, say, research or um, any implementation projects that they can do? And if so, what kind of projects do you think or what kind of research topics do you think need to be um, that youth can actually start thinking about or go into, especially in this day and age? I think um, I think it's I mean those are new areas people can youths can actually focus on because quite a lot of projects um, done in sub-Saharan Africa often neglect you know the the gender aspect of things you know how you know um, you know how it maybe fosters gender entrepreneurship <laughs> you know what what what's what it's it's the truth you know a woman who typically spends more time collecting firewood now has electricity so that means she has less time to spend on collecting and firewood, more time to other things her own stuff and something much more yes yeah so how is that you know you know those are things we don't have statistical uh, evidence for we've not been able to collect data and measure that and these are areas that i think people can actually look into also we can actually look at how i mean you can actually look at how um new power dynamics unfold how people are empowered with electricity and how people are disempowered so for instance um let's look at the agricultural sector a woman who relies on income by using traditional pressing mill and then there is a new machine that can do a better job that is being powered by a man you know so that means that women in that value chain are losing their jobs because there's a machine that's going to do it so even though technology empowers but how does it disempower some people and how is that you know how does that play out within the community level so, and i think it also opens up doors to transitioning because then the th question now becomes now that we have a technological solution how do you help those who've been disempowered to transition say to another um sector that will allow them to exactly. maybe transfer their skills but still exactly. be able to um benefit from it Exactly, and this whole process leads to more learning. You know, that's the whole the 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 whole conversation about the learning curve. It leads to more learning. People learn more. People are increase their skills. They learn new skills, and they are able to be more beneficial to their society. And so, for me, it's like the the whole transitions debates, energy transitions debates is. It's not just about a debate. It's just, you know, you're looking at Africa and you're saying, what have we been doing wrong in the last 10 years that has, not, that has led to the fact that, you know, that has created this, this space of deployment but not effectiveness? So we see quite a lot of projects coming into Africa. And then after, after a year or two or three, you see that they, they are no longer as functional as you expect them to be. So you talk about management issues, you talk about community relations, you know, is it that they just come in with their projects and just dump it and, you know, expect people to clap and say, okay, yeah, you've done something for us. Or is it that they consult people? Because I have seen a number of projects here, for instance, in the Netherlands, and you see a lot of community building, you know, community ownership of projects. So how is that playing out in Africa? Is that, is that actually happening? If it's not, why? You know? So those are critical questions to ask.
sorry to stop you i also just wanted to ask do you think that now that you've talked about um a lot of deployment and no effectiveness do you think that strategy is also something that's important to consider do you think that a lot of people come with a solution but they don't really have a mapped out sort of plan as to how they'll ensure that it's sustainable or do you think that they have the strategies but then it's just not being implemented as well i think strategy is quite critical and i think like i say one of the critical one of the uh, the most important things I've I've observed is that people come with you know they come with a Western mentality with regards to projects in Africa and they 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 just assume okay because it's we've done it here uh, in 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 our country in the West it's you know we can easily replicate it in 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 Africa but the fact is that there are geographical specificities for developing countries for each country that's unique to them and you have to put that into consideration because if not your projects fails woefully so which is why you've seen you know you've seen a lot of stop go projects you've seen a lot of projects that you know after five years the 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 solar panel is gone this this is gone because most it's people not just there why is it exactly exactly so most people just come in there and say because we're able to do it in the Netherlands or in Germany, we, we can just replicate it. But there are geographical contexts, there are social cultural contexts in developing countries that you need to consider. And if that is not an essential part of your project's plan, it's going to fail. You know, it's not going to be effective. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. Actually, thank you for sharing that because I think that's one of the things that we wanted our listeners to also um, hear from people who are actually working in the field that a lot of times there are a lot of these projects that are out there, but people there are many people who do not have a contextual understanding of what is happening on the ground. And so one of the things that we're calling upon and trying to enlighten the youth about is to realize that you have already you are already in this space. And so through these podcasts, we hope that you'll be able to use this knowledge and understanding of the contextual situation to develop solutions for it. So thank you so much for sharing that with us, um, Olu. Uh, I also wanted to add one more thing. Um, in terms of, because you're studying, you just, you recently completed your PhD. Mm-hmm. Uh, congratulations thank you very for much. that. Um, I'm sure there are a lot of students who are at that point where they're also questioning whether they should proceed with um, academia and maybe go ahead and get a PhD. Um, in your opinion, do you think that this is an important um, step that students should consider? What are your opinions on that? Oh, um, thank you very much. Um, I think that when, when people talk about a PhD, it's a good thing. <laughs> After all, I mm. did it. It's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> but I also feel that you need to actually ask yourself serious questions. You need to be sure, you know, because sustainability or sustainable development is quite a broad mm. field. You know, it's a broad topic. It's a broad field. So you need to be sure what you want to do. So for me, I li- I'd like to, my advice is that you take small steps. So for example, why don't you try and champion a green project in your neighborhood or volunteer on a sustainability program? This helps you define your interests. You know, it helps you sort of means narrow down what you exactly have passion for you know maybe you can join you can also join a community of practice a research association you know a community of gardeners or financial analysts or urban living labs we've we've seen quite a lot of that growing in africa um perhaps you you need to just uh engage people in the community and say this is there's a problem we're having and how do you think we can best solve this 
Um, so once you understand your motivations, once you understand them, and then you surround yourself with the network that you need, or you know, you can even start up your own mini NGO thing and all, but you must be able to say, okay, this is where I want to be. This is what I want to do. Because a lot of people go into research not knowing what they want to do. I mean, it's okay to find yourself within that space, but I think it would be much more better if you've already, you know, garnered some experience, you know, and you already have a clear court idea of what you want to do in your mind. And then once you go into research, it's much more better. It's much more easier because you have a question to answer. And which is what research is all about. You you want to answer a question. You want to solve a wicked problem in your community. So, and I think that should be the underlying um, factor that drives you. Because, I mean, when, when, I, when I decided to, to work on energy, I had lost someone... I had lost someone to, to 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 candle, you know. The person, a younger family friend had died because of my exposure to candles. And uh, for me, that was like a, a motivation that, you know, we need to solve this energy access issue. So you need to have something that drives you, basically. And you need to be able to have been able to garner experience and build networks. And, you know, then, you know, doing the research is just the... The little part of it. Oh, thank you for that. And on that note, actually, to our listeners, um, I thought I should also share the link for the Engineering for Development course, which is um, the course that we did with Olu and a few other students from different parts of the world. Uh, it'll give you a lot of insight into some of the topics that we covered. But I think also, in addition to uh, to add on to something that Olu just mentioned now, the importance of building networks. It was a great opportunity for us to meet other students. That's how I met um, Olu as well. And that's sort of what has led to us having this podcast. Podcast. For our listeners, if you want to actually um, learn more about what we talked about today, we have attached a link to the course that we did for engineer, uh, on engineering for development, which will give you a bit more um, knowledge and a bit more background into understanding um, low carbon energy strategies for low to middle income countries. In addition to that, if you're keen to find out more about us, you can check out our website, www.greencollarafrica.org. Our Facebook is the Africa Green Collar Project. Our Twitter is Green Sea Africa. And our Instagram account is Green Collar Africa. Thank you, Olu. Cheers. Goodbye.